0: Welcome to the waste not what not podcast i'm philippa ross human ecologist enthusiologist author and energy healer bringing you inspirational interviews news and tips to rebuild the relationship between people and the planet the way nature intended by revitalizing our natural resources minimizing waste and maximizing human potential i trust you'll discover seeds of hope for a vibrant future so you can cultivate and transform them to suit your own lifestyle in order for us to collectively create a world where reverence for the diversity of all life is honoured, you'll find all the show notes in the description and lots more about me and my work at Philiporos.com. And don't forget, if you like what you hear, be sure to share far and wide. Hello, Wastebusters. Welcome to May's edition of the Waste Not Want Not podcast. I was inspired to start this podcast nearly 18 months ago as a way to honour the decades and lessons learned from the years leading up to my embracing life as a sexagenarian. Today's guest, Peter Quillenston, is close to becoming an octogenarian who agrees youth is wasted on the young. His passion and curiosity for life has increased with age thanks to a sacred union he's cultivated with the olive tree. Another reason for my bringing stories of how people from all walks of life have tapped into what brings them joy is to ignite a spark of hope in you, the listener, to pursue what matters most to you, to help you release the pressure of keeping up with or living up to societal expectations, because life in all its forms is a gift, so please revere yours, don't waste it, live it in a way that honours your true self. Something that a Victorian novelist, George Eliot, did as a means to be taken seriously, using a pen name as a guise for her work as Mary Ann Evans to escape the stereotypical expectations of a female novelist. He she succinctly sums up what being faithful to yourself involves by saying, For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. And that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who live faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Proof there that you don't have to stand on a podium and proclaim what's in your heart to convince others. Quietly doing what lights you up moment to moment leaves a more potent elixir for life. So without further ado I'm offering my conversation with Peter Crelinston, as a unique olive branch to help you find peace within yourself and the patience to persevere and pursue your own dreams. Welcome to the show, Peter. It's an absolute delight to have you with me.
1: Thank you very much for inviting us and the olive trees to share some time with you. It's a privilege.
0: It was indeed a privilege because um, up until two weeks ago, I didn't know anything about you. And you only live five minutes around the corner from me. I was picking some blueberries with your partner, Tara, and she started telling me about your olive bug and that you are really passionate about it. And after spending a good probably four hours and talking about your journey, I was totally captivated and just wanted to share the wisdom that you've acquired from the olive trees and also to inspire people to take on board life's journey because I think at the crux of this what I in because I've got a little bit of that bug I've discovered that the olive trees are really symbolic and encourage us to make that connection and respect for nature
1: yes uh, I think that pretty much summarizes my connection to the olive tree how it enables us in a humble way to appreciate and connect with nature uh, I'm not sure that I've gained any wisdom from the olive tree, but I certainly have gained humility.
0: In what way?
1: The olive tree has been working with us humans for probably a minimum of 8,000 years, if not 10,000 years, eight to 9,000 BC. The, the wisdom of the olive tree, how it survived so long, what it's provided humans with, and our relationship with it just creates a Or ought to create a great humility in us.
0: And is that what you would say is the olive bug or is there more to this bug? Uh,
1: I'm not sure how to define the olive bug and I've been struggling with that ever since you started asking me about it. (laughs) Um, I'm sure you've heard of Cervantes, the Spanish author from the 1600s. No. Probably one of Spain's most famous architects was Miguel Cervantes from the the 1600s He was totally taken with the olive tree. And I I looked up his summary of it, which I thought may be able to provide us some insight into what the olive bug is, if I may take the liberty of reading it to you. And it quotes, These trees so fresh, so full, so beautiful, when they display their fruit, green, golden and black, is amongst the most agreeable sights that one might ever see.
0: As you say, it's actually really hard to put it into words I don't actually like the olive fruit itself, I like the oil, and I had not actually appreciated that the green ones were the unripe ones and the black ones were the ripe ones, probably because I don't like olives, so I hadn't gone down that path, but it's a very sensory experience and like someone's presence when you're in it, it's very hard to capture in words what it is about them. but the more you discover. And we had this conversation over a cup of tea the other week. It was the older we get, the more we discover we don't know. And it's not frustrating, but it's almost exhilarating. And as if there's not enough time to discover everything that we want to discover, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Someone once said, it's a pity that youth is wasted on the young. (laughs)
0: That's beautiful. I love it.
1: I love it. Thomas Jefferson, the ancient American president, once said that he became bitten by the olive bug after a tour to France shortly after his presidency began. And he came back from France and started importing olive trees to Virginia and was totally bitten by the olive bug. And he quipped one day that the olive tree is the greatest gift from heaven.
0: I think it's important to say part of your journey is you actually trained as a doctor, didn't you? And I always find it fascinating, people's journeys, what they do throughout their lives. And you are now uh, enamored by olives and you have an olive farm, but it's really the properties of the olives that has, or a part of it that has really captured your heart so far as the polyphenols are concerned and the amazing things that these elements of the olives fruit can actually do. Would you like to tell us a little more about what polyphenols are and the attributes that they do have?
1: Yes, it'd be a pleasure to have the opportunity to do that. Just going back in time a little bit, Hippocrates just over 2000 years ago, who is known as the father of medicine, referred to olive oil as the great healer. Right. And Homer referred to olive oil as liquid gold. And 2,000 years ago, in the height of the Greek cultural renaissance, the the Greeks understood way back then the, the health benefits of olive oil. They used to anoint all their athletes in olive oil massages before and after participating in sporting events. And so the health benefits of olive oil have been recognized for thousands of years, but it seems only recently, perhaps in the last 40 years, that the Western world is starting to gain some insight again into the health benefits of olive oil. Olive oil consists of about 72%, what we call monounsaturated fatty acids, the main one being oleic acid. And then there's about 14% saturated fats and then about 17% polyunsaturated fats. They provide some of the health benefits, but the major benefits come from most of what's left, not more than 2%, nevertheless, and they're collectively referred to as polyphenols. So in general, polyphenols have been well known for years now as, as powerful antioxidants. And I guess about 11 years ago, the European Union following up on a lot of pressure from the olive growers industry, decreed that olive growers were now allowed to put on the labels on their bottles that olive oil had a health benefit, a health benefit, that being its antioxidant properties, as long as the total polyphenol content in the olive oil was more than 250 milligrams per kilogram of olives. There's various ways of measuring the polyphenols in olive oil. Uh, Some of the instrumentation is much more accurate than others, but um, that's for another day. But they defined 250 milligrams per kilogram as the bottom line for health benefits commencing. That was about 2012, and it was about the same time that a Greek professor of pharmacology from the University of Athens, Professor Procopius, in a lab in Athens with sophisticated lab technology developed the means to look at the individual polyphenols that make up the total polyphenol content in olive oil so overall there's about 25 polyphenols in olive oil globally there's about 800 polyphenols found in fruit around the world wine for example dark chocolate and so on but there's about 25 polyphenols in extra virgin olive oil And it's important to stress extra virgin or high quality olive oil because in the lower grades of olive oil, the polyphenols have been stripped out through the chemical processing. And of the 25 polyphenols, there's five or six that are significant in terms of the the health benefits. And so Procopius in Athens with his group was very significant in terms of defining what these major polyphenols are and being able to individually measure them as opposed to simply the Total polyphenol content. So, one of the major ones that's been defined more recently is called oleocanthal, O L E O C A N T H A L. Oleocanthal is the particular polyphenol that has very strong anti inflammatory activity. And then there's another oleo polyphenol called oleosin and another one called olirapin, and they have quite significant antioxidant properties. A lot of work's been done in recent years at Yale University, some very wealthy American endowed center at Yale University for all of research, and as well at the University of California. So there's excellent work that's been emanating for more than 10 years out of California, Yale, and also from the group in Athens. And we tend to look at the results of those studies because they're they're not biased. There's work coming out of Spain and Italy as well, but The vested interests in those countries are major, whereas in the other centers I've referred to, the vested interests are simply in terms of the health benefits, not in terms of selling olive oil.
0: It's not the commercial driven by money aspect of things, right?
1: And so the anti-inflammatory and antioxidant properties have a significant effect in in respect of vascular disease in general and coronary artery disease and, and strokes more particularly. Because oxidation is part of the, the process of atherosclerosis, the damage of the vascular tree in our body, the formation of atherosclerotic plaque, which eventually occludes arteries and leads to strokes and heart attacks. So the anti-inflammatory activity and the antioxidant activity both go some way towards ameliorating that. As well, the polyphenols seem to have a, a positive impact in terms of cholesterol metabolism there's two lipoproteins called high-density and low-density lipoproteins that are part of the cholesterol complex. And low-density lipoproteins are in the general public referred to as the bad ones because oxidized low-density lipoproteins are part of the constituency of atherosclerotic plaque or what makes up the material that narrows our arteries. And so uh, the antioxidant activity from polyphenols tends to inhibit the oxidation of low-density lipoproteins, which is a benefit. And also seem to help increase the level of high-density lipoproteins, which help to remove cholesterol from our circulation to the liver for metabolism and excretion. So that's all helpful. And then it's well known nowadays that coronary artery disease to a significant extent is a chronic inflammatory disease of the coronary arteries, and so the anti-inflammatory activity of oleocanthal helps to ameliorate that. In addition, oleocanthal is known to be a platelet inhibitor. And platelets are essential in the evolution of when you cut yourself and you make a clot, uh, platelets yeah. play a major role in that process. When one has a heart attack, what's happened is a atherosclerotic plaque has cracked or ruptured. And the body recognizes as a cut and makes a thrombus or causes thrombosis, which converts a partial occlusion into a total occlusion of a coronary artery. So platelet inhibitors help to ameliorate that process as well, which is why lots of people with vascular disease are put on to anticoagulants. The beauty of oleocanthal as an anticoagulant is it really doesn't have any significant side effects. So we have the powerful anti-inflammatory activity of oleocanthal, which of course also starts to help people who have rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis, or other diseases with an inflammatory component because of its anti-inflammatory activity. So there's a whole host of Mm. diseases out there with an inflammatory component that oleocanthal helps. More recently, out of California and the group there they've been able to demonstrate that these polyphenols seem to have neuroprotective properties, which is quite exciting. And they've even gone on with repetitive cognitive function testing and so on to demonstrate that these polyphenols found in high concentration in extra virgin olive oil, significantly above 250 milligrams. We're talking 1,200, 1,500 milligrams. So that's getting up there. Uh, Nevertheless, what we refer to as high phenolic extra virgin olive oil, as just defined, seems to have neuroprotective properties. So people with Alzheimer's, they've demonstrated cognitive improvement after a year of taking um, two or three tablespoons of high phenolic olive oil per day. Uh, They've demonstrated that it could slow the progression of Alzheimer's, slow the progression of senile dementia in the general population as well. So neuroprotective properties from the oleocanthal and the other polyphenols is very exciting uh, in terms of the clinical trials that are emanating. And it's also been shown out of Yale University. Uh, Some people with MS, with multiple sclerosis, seem to, when they take high phenolic olive oil, get a remission or reduction in symptoms or reduction in the medicines that they're taking. Those are just a few of the diseases wherein polyphenols are seemingly having a a positive impact. So, chronic inflammatory diseases, coronary artery disease, vascular disease, dementias, Alzheimer's, and so on. That's not to say that extra virgin olive oil is a silver bullet, it is going to make you live forever. Absolutely not. But I think in conjunction with a healthy lifestyle, good dietary habits, good exercise habits, and taking high phenolic extra virgin olive oil, and those are some of the parameters of what they discovered in the blue zones around the world, where there's a high prevalence rate of people living to 100. The, the signatures of that in, in Italy and Japan and in Greece uh, seem to be a, a very good Mediterranean diet, of which high phenolic olive oil is a major component, as well as fruits wow. and vegetables, exercise on a daily basis, and a sense of community. Those are some of the parameters that are seemingly contributing to longevity.
0: Obviously, I had to buy a bottle from you, which is rather scrumptious. It also <laughs> mentions um, anti-cancer as well.
1: Oh, and- yes. So a lot of work's been done now with hyphenolic uh, extra virgin olive oil and, and cancer. So it's not a be-all and an end-all to eliminate cancer from human beings. People get confused. People think that cancer is a disease. But cancer is over 100 different diseases, uh, akin to what we refer to as infectious diseases. But clearly, syphilis has nothing to do with measles. There are different diseases, but they can be spread from person to person. Well, cancer has certain things in property, but there's over 100 different cancers and some of them are vastly different. But if we look at breast cancer in particular, really interesting work that's been done in the lab, mainly giving high phenolic olive oil to certain kinds of breast cancer cells in a Petri dish. And then they observe that the cells start to die. Uh, one particular breast cancer called triple negative breast cancer. And so that's very exciting. Also in prostate cancer, seems to have some benefits. And then um, leukemia, a blood cancer. The work coming out of Dr. Procopius' lab in Athens is showing that people with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, when they go on to high phenolic olive oil, their white blood cell count starts to drop again. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So, leukemia, blood cancer, certain kinds of breast cancer, prostate cancer, and also large bowel cancers and other cancer where in some preventive properties for iphenolic extra virgin olive oil are being noted. So a whole host of cancers as well.
0: That's just phenomenal, isn't it, because nowadays a lot of people have immune diseases and cancer appears to be more prevalent now whether that is because we know more about it but i think it's so so important for us to build that relationship with nature as einstein said look deep into nature and it has all the answers for you as you say it's not a silver bullet but it's really about seeing the properties of stuff and Again, it depends, as you say, you mentioned the blue zones. So wherever you happen to be, whatever the climate is, whatever fruits or plants are being produced are obviously good, conducive to that environment and are going to help us as humans. And I remember in our conversation you spoke a lot about everybody is unique. So our our metabolism is unique. Can you speak more into that?
1: Yes. Um, One of the things you just mentioned in in respect of immune system and more diseases that seem to be related to troubles with humans' immune system, causality is a a very interesting phenomena. Um, we're, We're very good at creating causality, but it's not always absolutely true. And sometimes not even relatively true. But, you know, we've learned a lot more about uh, diseases in in the last 50 years as uh, medical technology has exploded in so many directions. But uh, on top of that, the diagnosis of various diseases is is made much more frequently now. We're better trained at at diagnosing disease. And uh, many countries that didn't have national registries 40, 50 years ago now have national registries which much advanced reporting systems, again, consequent to computer technology and the internet and so on. So many diseases that were ill-defined 50, 60, 70 years ago are well-defined but not reported and collated. That happens much, much less now. So part of the increasing prevalence of of many diseases is is maybe not so much We're, we're getting that disease more often, but it's being diagnosed more frequently and reported much more accurately than it ever was before. So our our databases are so sophisticated nowadays and reporting is just so enhanced. That has to be factored into the equation when we look at increasing prevalence of of diseases. I think recently for the first time in our collective history, we have more people dying from obesity than from malnutrition. This has never been recorded previously in human Mm. history. Mm. Uh, and so that says something uh, certainly in the western world our, our dietary habits are, are deplorable most of the food on the plate of the average american when he or she sits down for dinner has traveled 1500 miles from source to plate and uh, just the production of food the, the, the factory production of food the chemicals that go into food i, I remember back in the 1970s while still living in quebec in and it had been observed that young girls in Puerto Rico were developing the onset of puberty on average 18 months before the, the mainland Northern Enigma as to why. And it was look, looked into and it was realized that a lot of the chicken in mainland America was being produced in Puerto Rico. It was a, a major chicken production factory for the rest of America. And the chicken producers were pouring huge amounts of estrogen into the chicken feed to fatten them up more quickly. So much so that estrogen was in the atmosphere and young girls were inhaling it, consequent earlier onset of puberty. Wow. That hasn't stopped. If you look nowadays, something like 85% of Americans have the metabolic byproducts of glyphosate in their urine. All of us around the world are inhaling about a Visa card worth of plastic per month. Our nutrition is simply not very healthy as we sit here and talk. Our exercise habits in general are also very, very poor. Um, Well, I know yours
0: are very, very good because when I visited you and you showed me around your um, olive press room, you had a running machine. And if you don't mind my sharing, you are in your 80s, are you not? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well I'm, I'm going to be 80 next month yeah
0: you're going to be 80 next I, month.
1: I put L, I put LA after my name instead of MD nowadays we'll have for quite some time
0: <laughs> but you were also telling me that you'd actually uh, run from the north to the south of um, Thailand a number of years ago with a group of people raising funds for aids and things and so what got you into running and how has it helped you
1: I started running in around 1970. I'm struggling with trying to remember what got me into running at the starting line way back then, over 50 years ago. I think it was probably just related to, I had a couple of friends who started running and asked if I would join. Right. Quite a, a simple, nothing more motivating than that at the time, but, but I never stopped. If you become reasonably physically fit and, and run consistently, eventually, it becomes meditation in motion. And of course, it's well known that you start synthesizing what are called endorphins in your brain as you exercise, and the endorphins create a a pleasurable sensation in your body. If you do run consistently and then you stop, you begin, if you're conscious at all, to realize that you're feeling better as a human being when you're running. And so it it can become addicting. I don't know if that's because of the endorphins or just because of the feeling of wellness that one gets from, from exercise. Hundreds and hundreds of of studies have been done now on the, the cardiovascular benefits of exercise. If you don't gain weight, you know, large bowel or colon cancer is much more common in overweight, obese people. So exercise and, and controlling your weight is, is very preventive in terms of large bowel cancer. And so many studies have come out now uh, on the benefits for cognitive function of persistent exercise. Uh, it's been well demonstrated with a MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, that the, uh, the frontal lobe and the hippocampus in people who exercise as they age is measurably larger than in people who do not exercise. And of course, the frontal lobe and the hippocampus are essential for maintaining half-decent cognitive function and memory as you age. And mm. so exercise just brings all kinds of, of health benefits um, to individuals. And I'm afraid to stop to be honest
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, good but it doesn't have to be running does it because I mean one of the things that I do in encouraging people it is really about movement and finding what gives you that um, impetus and gets the endorphins running because you're not going to be inclined to carry on doing something if you don't feel a connection to it like for myself I love dancing uh, for other people they can't think of anything worse and um, the idea of running to me just sends me cold I'd rather go for a good walk on hikes sort of <laughs> so it's definitely horses for courses and you know a lot of people end up doing things for causes like you did running from the north to the south of Thailand with eight or nine other people Can you tell the listeners what that was in ADOL?
1: Yes, I can. Uh, Just before I do do that, uh, in respect of exercise, anything that gets you up and about is of benefit. Absolutely no doubt, no matter what the format is from whatever, walking, dancing, snowboarding, whatever. Uh, But uh, to really accrue the health benefits, the guideline is you have to get your heart rate up to about twice your resting heart rate for at least 150 minutes a week. Okay. Or 30 minutes, 30 minutes, five times a week. So, you know, resistance exercise has been demonstrated to be excellent in terms of cardiac function, Yeah. but also dynamic exercise and getting your heart rate up. So coming back to what I did in, in Thailand, we were a group of, of 10 people. I was living in the Thail- in Thailand at the time and had become involved in, this was in the, around 1995. Unfortunately, HIV AIDS had made major inroads into certain sectors of Thai society. And by virtue of circumstance, I was living in Bangkok at the time and became involved in that and uh, decided to try to look for a venue to raise some money for some certain things that needed some help in Thailand. And so, I organized, I was in the fortunate position of being able to uh, organize some people. So I got together Thailand's nine best female and male marathon runners. We were 10 all together, including myself. And uh, we ran about 3,500 kilometers in 21 days from the very far south of Thailand, from a town called Hadjai, all the way north to the Burmese border, past Chiang Mai in northern Thailand, and then turned around and ran back to Bangkok. And we uh, we raised about four hundred thousand U.S. dollars through the exercise, which was a, a wonderful twenty-one days in my life. It was very very special. Mm. The, the things that happened. We had thousands of people on the highways connecting A to B on our daily run that would give us the equivalent of two U.S. cents or three U.S. cents, and uh, we'd stop and collect it from these people. And it was just you know farmers and and peasants and and so on. And it was just a very humbling experience. And then we, at the end, gave the money for three projects in Thailand. One was to uh, try to assist researchers in the development of vaccine. And the, the second parameter was to give some money to enable a fund to allow Thai females who were pregnant and also had HIV to take a drug called a Zytothymidine or AZT that prevents transmission, vertical transmission from a pregnant mother to her fetus or offspring. So we tried to create a fund for that. And the third parameter was to create workshops nationwide to enable Thai females to say no when no was supposed to be said. And so that's where the $400,000 was uh, in theory allocated to those three projects. So. That was an interesting exercise back in 1995. So it's a while ago now.
0: Mm. Well, the last Uh, one- Each runner
1: ran ran about 30 to 35 kg a day, broken into two runs, Uh, one run and then a rest and then a second run.
0: Wow. 21 consecutive days of marathons That's just phenomenal. No wonder you're proud and a very special (laughs) time in your life, hey?
1: Yeah. At the end of that marathon, we had a, a, uh, there's a park in central Bangkok that most runners who have ever run in Bangkok will know of. It's called Lumpini Park. It's the the, the lungs of Bangkok. Ah. uh, On the the 21st day, when we arrived back, we ended up the run in Lumpini Park and it organized a, a 24 hour event in Lumpini Park. And so dozens and dozens of Thai companies. Uh, created runners teams and they had their runners team participate in a 24-hour run-a-thon and then some of Thailand's best rock bands and so on put on a huge performance. It was a, a big day in Lumpini Park at the end of that run
0: phenomenal and the exponential effect of what a group of 10 people can do not just the money but as you say I could the listeners can't see it but the look on your face in receiving the odd few cents from the peasants and things was very heartwarming and the education and I picked up with the last point that you made about teaching the girls to say no I guess in that a change of culture as well in the men not pushing themselves on them i guess and it's not taking the women for granted that's what struck me anyway
1: Indeed, yeah we ne-
0: we'll never know the impact of something we do and i think one of the lessons that i've learned is to just go with the flow of what is filling you up at the time because you will find your community and you will connect to people who make it bigger and then it has an impact on the other people around you and you just never know how long it will go on for. And that has stayed in your heart. Uh, If only the listeners could see the smile on your face and the sense of pride (laughs) and everything else like that, it's just phenomenal. Uh, Thank you. You kind of got despondent about being a general practitioner and came away from it and you ended up collecting the data resource for insurance companies. Is the word despondent fair to say?
1: Um, yeah, I, I think I I just reached the point where um, it was time to say goodbye to, to family practice for a, a lot of reasons. and. Through circumstance, I ended up being offered a job with a very large life insurance company in Hong Kong. The name of the company is called AIG, American International Group. And um, always craving the opportunity to live and work in other cultures. could never say no to that my whole life. and so the the opportunity to to move to Hong Kong and immerse myself in in what the job definition was defined as, which was more or less teaching. Uh, AIG had a cohort of about 35 to 40 doctors working full time for them uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s. Part of the job was providing some education for this group of doctors uh, in a whole host of countries from Japan to Korea, the Philippines, Australia, New Zealand, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, and eventually India and China. And so uh, it allowed me the opportunity to, to travel and Significantly participate with individuals working in all those countries. And that turned to be absolutely for me uh, fascinating and, and educational. And so I ended up doing that for well over 30 years, um, more or less just traveling around Asia, teaching a number of parameters within uh, clinical medicine. And then um, when I was working for AIG. It, it so happened that HIV AIDS reached Thailand in a serious way. And all insurance companies were very worried about the advent of HIV AIDS for um, not such good reasons. The reason being that it was a new disease and their actuaries had never priced it for it in premiums that people pay for insurance. And so they were very frightened that it was going to Be a very, very expensive disease. And so that led to lots of issues, uh, one of which was AIG moving me to Bangkok (laughs) to try to work on that issue.
0: So, what did you learn from the various cultures? I mean, you went to teach, but you must have learned learned a lot lot from these various countries. Was there a common denominator in their approach to health or something that was lacking that you could help and with an understanding of their background?
1: In medicine, clinicians in general have difficulty with the interpretation of diagnostic data. As a generalization, they use exactly the same tests, whatever they are, blood tests, x-rays, computerized scans, ECGs, exercise ECGs, whatever. They use exactly the same testing modalities as screening tools in the general population and as diagnostic tools in people who have complaints. But the interpretation of the results based on why was the test ordered are vastly different. And they have a relatively poor understanding of that. If we were to send you for an exercise ECG and it was reported as positive, there'd probably be a 70 or 80% chance that it would be a false positive test result. But almost certainly your family doctor will refer you to a cardiologist who will refer you for angiograms. And then at the end of the day, tell you, we've got great news for you. Your angiograms were normal and the exercise ECG was a false positive. Well, if they had looked at the diagnostic data in the context of your risk profile way back at the starting line, they probably statistically could have reached that conclusion that day that it was highly likely to be a false positive. So doctors have poor understanding of the interpretation of diagnostic data. So for whatever reason, I ended up traveling around Asia um, teaching about that and then a, a number of other diseases. But what did I learn? I, I, I learned that not everybody speaks English on planet Earth. <laughs> so uh In some countries, my dissertations, I had to have an interpreter beside me, and that was always an interesting experience, especially in Japan. In Japan, I mainly lectured about HIV AIDS. I would say something in in English that would take me 30 seconds, and my Japanese translator standing next to me, it would take three minutes to translate it. And I was often left standing there saying to myself, my God, what have I said? So, yes, not, not everybody speaks English, and of course, that uh, has a major impact on interacting with people from the educational point of view if they don't understand your language, and you have to have a translator. So, yes, I learned that uh, it's not a universal language, English. I also learned that, for whatever reason, some cultures seem to be more receptive to learning from Westerners than other cultures.
0: Right. Is that because of their indigenous cultures? They're more um, entrenched in it or more or less open to it? Or is it something else?
1: I, like- I think it's partly a, a language thing. And I think partly with historical familiarity with the Western world, part of my teachings usually were five days a, a work week. The mornings were lectures and the afternoon were workshops. In India, for example, or Malaysia or Singapore, the whole flow ease of teaching and participation in the workshops was was very different from other countries where they were never um, infiltrated by Westerners for better or for worse. But certainly India was inundated with British culture for a couple of hundred years, and so was Singapore, and so was Malaysia. And if you go to those countries and, and work in a meaningful way with the people in terms of education, it's ephemeral. It's hard to pinpoint or Nail specific parameters, but it's just uh, the Gestalt whole, the sum of the parts, is just much, much easier than uh, trying to do exactly the same thing in Korea, Japan, Taiwan, for example. They end up being very different experiences and not nearly as easy to um, be effective in those countries compared to the ones where they're more familiar with Western culture and the English language.
0: I'm just going to pick up um, on what you said earlier. You were talking about risk profiles. What do you actually mean by a risk profile?
1: So that's a very good question. If we talk about, for example, cardiovascular disease and risk profile, so we know that family history can be significant as a risk factor for coronary artery disease. If your dad had a heart attack at age 35 and your mom at 41, you've probably inherited some parameters that put you at at genetically increased risk. So family history, and then a lot of lifestyle factors. So what are your dietary habits like? How good is your diet? What are your exercise habits like? How much do you exercise? What kind of exercise do you do? If you've ever had a blood test, what does your cholesterol metabolism look like? What's your weight? Are you overweight? What's your body mass index, A, a measurement of obesity? Which is controversial but the one that's most generally used body mass index is it under 25 or over 25 so your body stature if you're underweight overweight normal weight your family history your blood pressure do you have a history of hypertension yes or no if you do have high blood pressure is it well controlled is it not well controlled do you have trouble metabolizing glucose are you at increased risk of being a diabetic are you actually a diabetic? If you are a diabetic, what's the degree of diabetic control that you're aware of? Cholesterol metabolism. There's a disease that's very common nowadays called fatty liver. Mm-hmm. If you have fatty liver, that's indicative of probably abnormal cholesterol, poor dietary habits, and being overweight. And so all of those parameters collectively feed into what we call your risk profile. And so When doctors look at blood test results or diagnostic data on you from a screening point of view, it has to be looked at in the context of your risk profile. So when we look at an exercise ECG that's been done on a healthy 30-year-old and see that it's been called positive, that positivity is certainly different from when we look at exactly the same exercise ECG on a 75-year-old overweight diabetic with hypertension. On that latter individual, it's highly likely to be indicative of significant coronary artery disease, whereas on the 25-year-old, it's probably 99% probability of it being a false positive test result. And so diagnostic data has to be looked at in the context of risk profile, and it's not done very well in the clinical milieu, unfortunately. It takes time
0: so I'm really interested because you're talking about 40 years ago when you started doing this. So, and nowadays a huge killer is stress, which uh, has an impact on every part of of the body, depending on who you are and how you process it. I'm bringing it up because you didn't mention it within your risk factor. And so I'm be intrigued to know how high a percentage that would actually take, because that impacts, in my eyes, anyway. It has an impact on every function of the body.
1: Certainly, stress is a significant factor in terms of good health or ill health. Every bipedal, big-brained animal on the planet experiences stress, mm-hmm. i.e., humans, and I, I suppose just thinking as i'm talking one of the most important things about stress is what do we do with it how do we handle it
0: mm-hmm.
1: do we do something positive with it or do we do something negative with it and i think that is as important as the stress itself is how do we handle it
0: but i think nowadays we you said it it. like you were making the analogy because animals have that stress but it rests after a short period of time. But by the way society lives nowadays, that saber-toothed tiger that we all get told about, that's almost living 24-7. And so the fears that we take on are increased by the activity in the brain and the way that we think. And so adrenal fatigue and the cortisol levels are really increased So much more so nowadays than they were 40 years ago. I totally agree. And it is about learning to feel it in your body when it comes on and assess how to manage it. But that is a big, big factor nowadays.
1: Indeed. I I think if we also looked a little bit more at what is stressing us and why does it stress us? Mm -hmm. if we educated ourselves in respect of what is stressing me and why am I reacting this way to that stressor it might become a little bit easier to deal with it if you just watched what stresses people in the western world in terms of the activity of daily life it's and you stand back and cogitate and think about it people get stressed over things where if you stand back and look at it for a few minutes there's really no good reason to be getting stressed about it. So many things in our lifestyle nowadays lead to stress that's inappropriate in a sense. We've gotten so used to nothing going wrong in our life in the Western world. Uh, We've been totally addicted to technology and how technology solves all problems. But if we had a bit more of a global perspective about things, a lot of the things that stress us uh, as we're talking now, unfortunately, to use the Ukraine as an analogy, we don't have to get stressed about freezing the coming winter. We don't have to get stressed about a bomb falling on our roof tonight and on and on and on. There's so many things that we're so fortunate with in the Western world that if we stood back and looked at all of that, the things that stress us, we would learn to cope a lot better with, I think.
0: Absolutely. And it is it's about putting your focus on what is working and the gratitude for it and I think going outside and if you're not in a freezing cold country actually grounding yourself with bare feet on the earth and getting in touch with nature is awe-inspiring and it's really helped you so what do you actually do when you find yourself in a funk I mean obviously like myself it because I can remember having conversation with a girlfriend and thinking back to how I stressed out about my children and the and the things that were going on in life. And you look back and you think in the great scheme of things, it was nothing, but in the moment it seemed big. And I think part of your advice before was to stand back. And like with my grandchildren now, when they throw tanties and things, I can hold that space because I'm not reacting to it. I'm just responding and holding that space. So how do you respond to stress or when you're feeling down?
1: It's an interesting question. I guess as you, as you go through life, your responses to stress over time evolve and change. And that's certainly true for myself. But at this point in my life, I've lived in eight countries on the planet, and I have probably worked in 15 or 20 and visited 60 or 70. I think you, you get an education traveling around the world that you never, never can, or it's a very different kind of education from traveling in the milieu of different cultures and immersing yourself in them compared to university education i guess the last 30 40 years in my life i realize how incredibly fortunate we all are in the western world as we sit here there's 800 million people in the world who have never seen a light bulb go on we have 2 billion people living on less than 5 dollars us a day we're just so incredibly fortunate for whatever group of reasons in the western world that uh, when something's stressing me, I often stand back. The first thing I try to do is take a, a more of a global perspective about it and say, hey, everything's okay. This isn't that bad. Yeah. Stand back and relax. If, if that doesn't work, I'd probably go to my treadmill machine and I put some Andre Bocelli music on and start running. That's never not worked. But uh, <laughs> if it wouldn't work, my bottom line fall back to would be to go to the olive orchard and just sit down under an olive tree and um, that would do it for sure.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Do you but, know, uh, um, I hadn't actually appreciate I'd seen pictures of the of the dove and the olive branch and I hadn't actually appreciated the association and the symbolism of peace and how it got, reverts back to the bible times of the dove bringing an olive branch back to Noah's ark and providing hope sort of thing. So it's amazing. And, you know, I think I've got a little bit of the bug because I love symbolism and things like that. So looking at the history and the fact that they go back sort of 8,000 years and all the different kind of symbolism. And you were talking about lights there. Why are they not using the oil from the olives? Because they did thousands of years ago.
1: Absolutely. Uh, The olive tree, it's a special tree. You know, we uh, humans have had a intimate relationship with the olive tree going back to 7,000 BC. And we know that for sure from carbon dating of olive pits or stones that have been found in ancient olive mill sites in Jordan, Palestine, Israel, So, and carbon dating. So there's no doubt about it. And the things that the olive tree has given humans, including, as you just mentioned, light is one, cooking, the source of oil for cooking, and heat is another. And then all the health benefits, nutritional benefits, medicinal benefits of olive oil, a symbolism of peace, wood for fires, wood for carving, and so on. So we've just had an, an amazing relationship with the olive tree as a species for, since 6,000, 7,000 BC. I personally struggle to think of another plant that we've had such a relationship with that so much has been written about. Uh, you can fill a library with, with books written on the olive tree. Yes, it is a unique tree. And as you mentioned, the, the olive branch and the dove to Noah's Ark and the symbolism of peace. We certainly can use a dose of a dove with a branch flying around the world right now. Absolutely. Boy.
0: Can we? <laughs> yeah. ever. Talking of which that leads me to the end of the interview. Where I asked, has yes. there been a Thank book you. or a person that has influenced you in your life?
1: Yeah, I I was aware that you're going to ask me that because you told me you would. So I've been thinking about it a little bit. And um, I I don't think I can come up with one particular person or or one particular book. Many books and many people. I I learn something from everybody that I meet. And I learn something from every book that I read. There is one book that I, I read. I think it would have been when it was first published. There was a book that was written by a a French author, his name was Giono, I-G-O-N-O, I can't remember his first name, but his surname was Giono, G-I-O-N-O, yeah, Giono. He wrote a book, uh, it was called The Man Who Planted Trees. It was published in 1985, but it was previously published when it was first written by him in 1954. Or 55, and the title of it then I think was "The Man Who Planted Seeds and Gathered Hope." It's a fiction, but he he wrote a book about he created a, a fictional shepherd living up in Provence in the mountains. And all the trees had been cut down through the centuries. And his shepherd lived the life of a hermit with his flock of sheep and started planting trees. And as the story goes through the book, he ended up planting tens of thousands of trees and reforested bare mountains in Provence. And eventually in the 60s and 70s and 80s, alternative French people started moving and living in the mountains and so on. It's a short book, but it's, it's wonderful. And it's a, how humans can purposely reconnect with nature and, and what we have to learn from nature, our symbiotic relationship that could be with nature. And what a tragedy it is that for whatever reasons, we our species seems to continue as we talk to move further and further away from our potentially harmonious relationship with nature. And so I, that, that was a very, very special book to me that I read in 85, that uh, parts of which I've tried to carry with me until now.
0: And it just goes to show that one person can make a difference. And he wasn't consciously doing it. Well, maybe he was, but and I know you were saying it was fiction, but there are people around the world who who have done that in third world countries and planted one thing at a time, and it does make a difference. So, you know, it is the impetus of the podcast is to encourage people to take the bull by the horns and to keep doing what inspires them because it does make a difference.
1: Absolutely. Think of Gandhi. Think of Mandala.
0: Yeah, very, and very. We desperately
1: need some more people like that right now, don't we?
0: Is there a quote or a special phrase that you keep front of mind to keep you hopeful?
1: Oh, gosh. I've always been fascinated with quotes. I can't think of one in particular. There's so many. give
0: well, us okay, a couple then. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I I, I carry heaps of them around in my head on a daily basis. Um, This sounds like deja vu all over again, is one. (laughs) People often say how lucky one is. There is a quote that I've noticed in life, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Another quote is, luck is nothing more than the crossroads of knowledge and experience.
0: Yeah, it's what you do with what you know that makes a difference. And it's actually acting on it, because I think a part of society's disease at the moment is an expectation that somebody else would do it because they don't have the resilience to give it a go themselves.
1: I always like Fritz Perl's quote, I am I and you are you. And if by chance we come together, that's great. And if not, it can't be helped. That's the lovely quote. Churchill's quote, you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else.
0: (laughs) (laughs) On that note, if I was your fairy godmother, what is the one thing that you would like to do that would make a difference to your life and for the world?
1: I wouldn't do much to make any differences in my own life, but certainly in respect of the world. Just to mimic what hundreds of people a lot smarter than I have been saying for years and years, that we desperately need to look at some methodology of being able to form a global government with global powers that's going to start seriously looking at the redistribution of the planet's resources. What's happening on the planet right now is absolutely grotesque. The gulf between the rich and the poor It's totally unacceptable for our species. If if I had a magic wand and there was something I could do for the planet, it would be to reorganize the planet's resources so that we would eradicate extreme wealth and poverty. And those very rich people would have significantly less. And the two and a half billion poverty stricken people on the planet would all have a little bit more.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Well, on that note, Peter, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. And take heed from um, Peter's words that if you're bitten by the olive bug, watch out. But it's a healthy one. So keep pursuing it.
1: Well, thank you so much on behalf of the olive trees for the opportunity to talk with you a little bit. And if you want to get bitten again, please come on over for another cuppa.
0: Lovely. I most definitely will. Thank you. Thank you for your time, Peter. Thank you as well. You You take care. Bye. I'm really looking forward to my next rendezvous with Peter, and I'm sure he'd love to see you too if you're in the Kerry Kerry region. Details about the Buketti Olive Farm are in the show notes. While we're talking about the magical properties that nature provides, tomorrow is New Zealand's National Crystal Day, so it would be remiss of me not to mention the powerful energetic healing properties these minerals provide from the frequencies contained within the composition of their molecular structure. Just to give you a taster, I'll choose a green and a black crystal as an example to complement the olive fruits. Avaturine is a green crystal that's said to benefit the thymus gland and the nervous system. It balances blood pressure and stimulates the metabolism, lowering cholesterol. It also has an anti-inflammatory effect and eases skin eruptions, allergies, migraines and soothes the eyes. It heals lungs, sinuses, heart, muscular and urogenital systems. On a more spiritual level, it's known to help break unhealthy patterns and habits. Encouraging growth and change, it brings optimism, creativity, motivation and confidence to persevere and overcome obstacles. Black Obsidian promotes good circulation, relieves arthritis and joint pain, helps absorb vitamin C and D, soothes menstrual and digestive cramps as well as treating an enlarged prostate. It's a powerful crystal for peace of mind as it helps find the source and transform false beliefs we may have about ourselves to enhance a deeper connection. Have a great month and I look forward to being with you again in June when I'll bring you more fascinating folk to broaden your perspective on life. Make sure you follow or subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. All feedback and reviews are much appreciated as are your suggestions for subjects or guests you'd like me to consider. Just email me on info at So until next month, have fun, dig deep and open your mind to a world of possibilities. Live life with a generous heart and take steps to minimise waste and maximise your own potential.